I find that the more I sort of go with the flow, the less conflict there is. And I think that's very much the same with working with textiles, where I can try and force this velvet to do this certain thing, but that velvet does not want to work like that. And so kind of going with like, okay, what is, what does the velvet naturally want to do? It kind of wants to slip all over the place. So either I need to do a little bit less with it, or I just need to be really patient and calm and do it one stitch at a time. I'm Zach Foster, and you're listening to Seamside, the show where we explore the inner work of textiles. And today we sit down with embroiderer and clothes maker, Christy Johnson. Are you looking to get in with a creative crew that you don't have to explain yourself to? I'd love for you to consider the Quilty Nook, the online community for curious textile artists who are driven to make things differently. For less than a Netflix subscription each month, you get creative challenges called Unblocks, virtual sewing circles almost every day of the week, and exclusive workshop taught by a different visiting artist every month. Plus, you support the work I do here on Seamside and my own personal textile practice. To start your free trial and to see how the Nook can support your creative growth, Click on the Quilty Nook link in the show notes below, and I'll keep my eyes out for you. Let's take a look at the reviews this month, because they're like little love notes to me, folks. Here's one from bhibs3456, who says, Such good times for me. All the different artists have such different views on how they relate to the world, themselves, and their creative work. And they help me wonder about how I relate to the world, myself, and my work. Thank you, Zach, for bringing all these people to me so I can expand my own worldview right here from my tiny rural American town. Behibs, give my love to your tiny rural American town. And if you know what they're talking about, you're resonating with the conversations we have here on Seamside, then why not leave me a review just like Behib? I sure would appreciate it. Now, Christy Johnson and I have been floating in each other's orbits for a few years now. But you know how time passes, and when I sat down with her a couple weeks ago for a panel discussion, we realized it had already been too long. Christy is a clothes maker and embroiderer with an eye constantly trained on the mysteries of the universe. She's the author of Mystical Stitches, a book that I keep close at hand in my own studio, host of the Stitch Wish radio podcast, and now mother of a precious four-year-old human. At the end of this conversation, Christy gifts us with a visualization exercise that she walked us through a couple years ago. She takes us on a journey to find our own personal symbol. So be on the listen out for that. And with that, I hope you enjoy How to Unfold with my good friend, Christy Johnson. Christy, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here, Zach. For folks that can't see where you are right now, can you please paint the scene for us? Because from what I'm seeing, it's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm in my studio space, which is full of textiles from around the world and just sort of brimming with color and vibrancy. And slightly off screen, it's kind of a little bit of chaos, piles of fabric. And some of the fabric's folded, some of it is just in piles, just trying to keep the on-screen really beautiful, but I still really enjoy. Uh, I was not, no inspiration quite like a pile of fabric and just going, oh wow, that actually looks really good together. <laughs> well, you fooled me, you got it looking real good. <laughs> so Christy, we recently saw each other at the Rags to Riches Summit with Crispina French. And I felt like when I saw you at the summit, I'm like, oh, it's been so long since I've seen my friend Christy. And so it's so nice to have you back here. We're overdue for a catch up. Yeah, definitely, I agree. I really kind of, stepped out <laughs> for a minute in general and I really kind of felt like oh I, I would love to 
circle back around and just have a nice talk with my friend Zach. <laughs> yeah. uh, necessarily, because you've had a child since the last time we talked. Yes. <laughs> That's incredible. I've loved seeing in your feed her little hand snuggled into the corner of the frame. Or there was one where you were retailoring a, a purple jacket that didn't quite fit you. And we saw her feet kicking in the top left corner of the frame. Yeah. It's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, she's always there, no matter what's happening, <laughs> where yeah. she is, what she's doing. She's always really close by. <laughs> How old is she now? She is four months. Oof. Yeah. Just a little lump. Yeah. That's a really fun age because she, you know, just wants to hang out with me all the time. She smiles mm -hmm. and laughs. I can make her laugh. Like She loves mm -hmm. my singing. It's really... <laughs> I love that. A lot of love. Yeah. Yeah. Now, are you able to find that you can... She's young enough that you can still get some work done with her around? We are sort of transitioning into a period of time where that is not as easy. It's like in the really early childhood, they sort of sleep a lot. And so you can kind of get some work done, but you're completely exhausted because they sleep at random times a day. And now I'm getting more sleep at night, but she's kind of up all during the day. So anything that I can do is usually done with her. So it's there's an element of like, can this, can I, can I entertain a child with this? Which some things, yeah, like apparently sitting at the sewing machine with her, she's completely fascinated by the sewing machine. I have to be careful because I want to make sure if I break the needle, it doesn't go flying in her face. <laughs> but she can sit with me at the sewing machine. Whereas like if I want to sit and do some hand sewing, that's not as interesting for her because she can't, there's not a whole lot of movement going on. Tell you what, you're training her right, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're giving her the exposure. How is, as someone who is a non-parent, how, how does the introduction of a new family member into your household affect the, the balance and dynamics of your making practice? It really, it requires a lot of focus and a lot of pre-focus. So I know, okay, if I have like two hours that I can spend working on something, let's say, you know, her dad has her or I have help around the house or something, I need to already be ready to go. So there is no like, where's that fabric? Where's this? Like that all has to happen beforehand. And usually it happens in my mind first. So that's been a really important thing to recognize is like thinking basically like imagining the process of what I'm doing without taking away the experience of being with her. But let's say she's feeding or something or going kind of slowly to sleep and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I need to get this fabric out. Where's that fabric? That fabric's in the basement. I think it's on the second shelf. So I gotta, I'll run downstairs, I'll get that fabric. And so streamlining or even going down to the basement with her and getting the fabric and getting everything together to work on so that when I, when I do have time without her to work on it, I can really focus on it. And also just recognizing which parts of the process can I do with her that's actually kind of fun for her to watch. Well, and I imagine all that pre-focus, as you call it, and I love that term, all that pre-focus only adds to the parental exhaustion you probably feel at times. Yeah, because you're not, right. you're never, it's never like a relaxation time. No, no, <laughs> no. And so what kinds of things do you find that you're able to do with her around? Um, she was really into knitting for a while. She was really into watching the knitting and the crocheting. Now that she's getting more grabby. It's a lot harder. It's hilarious because she gets herself tangled up in the yarn and everything, but it's really just not as, you know, you're not getting anything done. It's more just like entertaining her. But definitely the sewing part is really fun. And also just like laying out, picking fabrics out. She loves print and pattern. And as somebody who grew up in my mom's sewing studio, just sort of playing with all the scraps, I'm like, this feels like an important part of your education. <laughs> 100 I mean, you turned out all right. Right, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever made a garment or a piece based on fabrics that your daughter gravitated towards? 
I'm actually in the process of, because I noticed that she really likes textured fabric. She likes to scratch things. She likes to scratch textured, you know, wood pieces or my, you know, little, my sister had a purse that she, that had some texture on it. She was scratching it. So we were in the process of picking out all the fabrics that she liked the texture of, and we're going to make a quilt with it. I can't wait to see that quilt. That's yeah. going to be beautiful. A while back, I had Mar Grace Ambrose, who is a quilter and a parent as well, like yourself. And I asked her, how is making a quilt like raising a child? And I can share with you her answer here in just a moment, but I don't want to sway you one way or another. How have you found that working with cloth, whether that's embroidery or knitting or sewing, is like raising a child in your Uh, four months of experience? Yeah, right. I know. I'm very, very limited experience here. But I think the patience (laughs) has been one thing that has been like like a deep well of patience that you have to access, a deep well of calmness with working with things and understanding that it's not always going to go as planned and sort of shifting and being really flexible with how to approach that. So for example, if I'm like, okay, we were supposed to, you know, you were supposed to take a nap at this time and I'm supposed to be working on the thing that I'm supposed to be working on, but you have no interest in napping and I could get frustrated and continue to try and put you down to sleep or I could, we could go for a walk in the garden and, you know, enjoy that period of time together. And I find that the more I sort of go with the flow, the less conflict there is. And I think that's very much the same with working with textiles where I can try and force this velvet to do this certain thing, but that velvet does not want to work like that. And so kind of going with like, okay, what is, what does the velvet naturally want to do? It kind of wants to slip all over the place. So either I need to do a little bit less with it and just allow it to be the fabric that it is, or I just need to be really patient and calm and do it one stitch at a time and not try and run this through the machine really fast, like maybe hand baste it first or something. So yeah, that sort of reflection of like, okay, what is happening and responding in the moment instead of having your own idea of what's supposed to happen or how things are supposed to go. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I've never raised a child, but I have worked with unruly fabric. Yeah, very similar. (laughs) Yeah, I just wrote down, what does the velvet want to do? (laughs) What a question. I feel like that's, I don't know, that's just a good good nugget to chew on for life. When I was talking to Mara, she said several things, but one of the things that I guess at least my takeaway was that um, I always think of quilt making as such a long, lengthy, and laborious process, Mm -hmm. as is much of working with textiles. But she says that's nothing like raising a child because you're on the hook for at least 18 years legally. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's like everything else. It totally shifted her time frame for, you know, she's naturally dyeing her own fabric. Everything is hand sewn. She's hand quilting. And so a piece can take her months to complete. But she's like, still, it's nothing like raising a child. <laughs> now, I recently saw that you have kicked back up your class with soft work again, with clothes making. And I imagine that having a child around probably makes you want to streamline your wardrobe even more, right? I don't know. I'm just guessing here. Yeah, going through the process of being going through a pregnancy and my body completely changing, and a big part of the soft work course for me is kind of acceptance with where your body is because I think there can be so much conversation within making clothes where we're like you you make something and you you use the pattern size based on what you think that that your size is and it's not your size and so with the soft work course you make that pattern based on your current measurements and so that's been something that I have had to embrace in my own life where I was kind of the same size for you know 30 something years and now I'm after post-pregnancy I'm like oh this is totally totally different body which is fine I gave 
birth to another human. Like it should be a totally different body. <laughs> and so working with that and kind of saying, well, okay, not only how do I, how do I sort of honor the new form, but also how do I make sure that things are, that there's an ease that works with raising a kid and kind of, I'm, I don't feel like I, anything's too precious and I can easily put it on and I can easily move around with it on. I don't have to worry about any sort of constrictions, which is all like kind of built into the software course. So I'm like, oh, I'm just using, I'm, I'm using my own lessons in a really beautiful way for me. When I imagine you designing clothing, I, I don't imagine like a ruler anywhere close to you. Yeah. I don't know if this is true or not, but I just imagine you holding up some some yardage and, you, and like maybe holding it up to your arm and just be like, oh, that'll work, snip, rip. Is that kind of how you approach it or am I just totally making this up? Yes, definitely. I do use a tape measure, not all the time, but it, you know, in certain situations I'll use a tape measure. But yeah, very rarely does the ruler come out. And also, but so much also based on the amount of fabric that I have, working with recycled, but also some new fabrics, that I maybe only bought a yard of. And it really is about looking at it on the body and saying like, what can I actually pull off here? What can I actually fit on this piece of fabric? And the best way to do that is to put it on the body. I can measure it all day long, but really holding it up to myself and saying like, okay, this is gonna be a very tiny pair of shorts and I do not wanna wear that. <laughs> maybe we'll go with a little tank top instead with this fabric. <laughs> What's your body's favorite fabric to wear? Oh. That's a tough one. I would say either a gauze or a raw silk, a cotton gauze or a raw silk. And why is that? Cotton gauze just has this way of sort of just moving with you. It's really breezy, but it's still sort of substantial enough where it doesn't feel super delicate, especially like a, a double gauze. It has that sort of beautiful way of draping on the body and also being able to just move freely with you it has like a little bit of a, a a nice bias on it so you know you move move around in it and then raw silk i just love the way it feels i love the way it takes dyes and it take when, when you dye with natural dyes the raw silk just really absorbs the color and i love bright colors so for me it's like i can't dye cottons with natural dyes to the intensity that i want them so I, I just let them be ivory and beige and you know i'm not going to try and force it and i let the silks be the color so that's more of like a internal feeling than physically feeling, but I just really, that, that the brightness and the intensity of the color that I get with a raw silk is really important for me emotionally. <laughs> hey, that's important. That's part of the body. How long you've been teaching folks how to sew like this? I think I started the soft work course in 2021, which doesn't feel like that long ago for me, because it feels like I've been, I've been working with these skills for decades and putting it into my own designs but I didn't really think that I had the capacity to teach others these skills and I don't even know how that came about to be honest with you now that I think about it I'm like where did I where did I how, what was this sort of evolution of this class how did it come about I'm guessing Marley had something to do with it I'm sure I'm sure they did yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like almost 100% sure what's been one of the surprises that you've had in working with the people you've worked with in soft work I think the the fact that this process, this way of making clothes, can apply to just about anybody. That was sort of a, a shot in the dark for me in the beginning. And I kind of ran some of the materials by my friend Pam, who is a fashion designer or you know, has worked in the industry for probably 40 years or something. I ran the idea by Pam and was kind of like, is this universal? And also Pam has a very different figure than mine. So it was like, I don't want to, you know, just design a course for people who are, you know, five, two and 
hundred and something pounds. So it was kind of like, are these, are these rules sort of universal? And that was super helpful in, in seeing that. And then also just seeing the way that people really go from not sewing to being able to make themselves clothes. I, I wasn't sure that somebody who didn't know how to sew would be able to do that, but really watching somebody who is just learning how to use their sewing machine for the first time and then like makes a dress and then makes a pair of pants based on their own patterns. I'm like, oh, okay, so you can do that. Like that is completely feasible as long as you give yourself the time to do it and also like give yourself a forgiveness of you're gonna mess up the first time. That's why we make a muslin the first time. You make a sample pattern and a sample garment and you see what works and what doesn't and you revise from there. And that's, I think that's a really important thing is like the revision. We're constantly kind of going back and forth from what we, what we envision to what's happening in reality and how to bring it back to what we are envisioning. Cause your body changes. Mm -hmm. And I imagine too that like after you've lived in that first garment for a while, you realize, oh, I do need a little more fullness here. I could take this in. So constantly right. revising. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe don't use the raw silk for the very first garment, huh? No, yeah. <laughs> and that's why I always say, I'm like, you, we don't, we're not using the good stuff. I see everybody wants to jump into the good fabric first and it's just gonna be a disappointment. So use an old bed sheet, an old pair of curtains or something, just see how it works, get the fabric on the body, because that's really important, I think. When, when I learned how to make clothes, we spent so much time with the fabric on the dress form and with the paper, and so rarely did we end up getting it on the body. Or it, it, There were so many steps before getting it on the body, and I'm like, one of the first steps is like, cut a hole in the fabric and put it over your head. Let's see how this is working in real life. <laughs> what percentage of your own wardrobe is self-made, would you say? I'd say probably about 20%, 25%. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I see you wearing those cute little denim cutoffs and stuff on Instagram. I'm like, yeah, she didn't make those, no. but you didn't make the top, right? Like yeah, you, you exactly. can tell. Yeah. You can tell. How does it, how does it feel or what does it mean to you to have those elements in your wardrobe? How does it feel different to you to wear something you've made versus something you bought off a rack at the store? It feels a little more empowering. I think it feels like I was, especially because now when I have a vision for what I want to wear, it has become very specific. And so I f started realizing that I could spend hours and hours shopping for this exact, you know, lilac silk pant, or I could spend an equal amount of hours drafting a pattern and dyeing the fabric to the exact shade of lilac that I want and making them exactly how I want. So I think the the level of precision and what I see as what's going to be good for me in my wardrobe is, has definitely increased. So being able to make my own clothes and fill that gap without having to do a bunch of online shopping <laughs> feels really good. So it's a, yeah, I would say it's empowering in that way. And I have a feeling we're going to circle back to that theme when we start talking about mystical stitches and doing a follow-up on that. So you mentioned you do a lot of natural dyeing, and I know you have a beautiful garden. How's the garden coming along this spring? The garden is really great. I honestly have had to take a huge step back from the garden because it is, I did not envision how difficult it is to hold a baby, even a baby in a carrier and reach down to the ground and do anything on the ground. It is very limiting. I can do about an hour of work before my back starts to hurt. So honestly, her father has taken on almost the entire gardening duties. I just take care of the flowers, which natural dyes fall into the flower part. So we don't have it quite as many as usual, but the marigold's always there. That's like my number one. I love, yellow is my favorite color, so it's just easy. Marigolds are so great in the garden and just really such a beautiful plant and such a beautiful dye. So that's been my sort of big, big opportunity for the dye plants there. Listening to you talk, I think of 
all of our foraging great-grandmothers who had to carry their children with them while working, looking for food and working the land and things like that. Do you find yourself thinking about the, the countless women before you who have done similar work, similar actions while carrying around a child I, at the same time? I do. I do think about yeah. that. And I think, wow, that's, these are incredibly strong women. I am still working up my core strength. I also had a child much later in life, I think, than many of them did. So I think that has something to do with it. And, and just trying to build up my strength as we go, but also knowing that in a, a few months, I'll be able to carry her on my back. And that will free up a little bit. It's still going to be a lot of lot more weight to carry, but it'll free up my hands a little bit. And what I'm really kind of excited or interested and curious about is when she gets mobile and starts wanting to rip plants out of the ground or, you know, play with them in whatever way and kind of educating her really early on on how to do that. And having a little bit of freedom and saying, you know what, maybe that's okay. Maybe that experience of having her rip a plant out of the ground is kind of part of raising kids and I don't need to be that precious about everything. About how else are they going to learn that plants have roots? Right, exactly. I think it's a good, it's a totally great learning experience. I recently saw a video of a friend's child who's also a gardener. Her, her daughter was pulling strawberries off the plant, but they weren't quite ripe yet. And I was thinking, oh, what a waste of a strawberry. And then I said, you know, no, she pulled the red one and then she pulled the green one and she immediately stuck both of them in her mouth and went, wow, I'm going to keep pulling the red one. And so I think letting, allowing the children to experience those things is so much more important than the preciousness of your strawberry plant. Which is also just a replication and repetition of how our earliest ancestors learned what to eat and what not to eat. History repeats itself. Yeah. One of the last times we talked, I mean, Christy, I, I think officially the last time we talked was two years ago when I first started Patreon and you shared with us a visualization activity. And you kind of talked us through how to get centered, how to get grounded, and then how to find your own personal symbol. And... That was in conjunction with thinking about mystical stitches, which I find to be a really good wealth of symbolic resources. It's kind of like a treasury, I think is the word that you use, that you yes. can flip through and find these symbols in your own work. And I'm becoming more and more interested in my own practice in glyphs, which I guess is just another fancy word for symbols, maybe symbols leaning towards alphabet. And I'm wondering how, how, how is mystical stitches for you maturing in the time since we've last talked? I feel like one of the difficult parts for Mystical Stitches for me was kind of reducing these symbols to a single paragraph. It, it did feel very reductive, but it also was sort of like, this is the best way to introduce people to these symbols. And I say that I say that as much in the beginning of the chapter is like these, all these symbols include magnitudes and we're just, I only have so many pages to work with here. <laughs> so I feel like understanding the greater meaning of these symbols, like they, they continue to just sort of unfold. And I am constantly like, oh, I wish I could put that in the book. And it's like, you know what, the book is a finite, a finite experience. And so just allowing that to sort of continue to exist in new yeah. forms. I recently, I was hanging out with a weaver friend of mine, Alicia Mann. Hi, Alicia, if you're listening. And Alicia recommended this book, Signs and Symbols by Adrian Frutiger. Do you know this book? I don't know. Uh, Christy, you need this in your library because <laughs> let me show you something. This symbol, this is an archaic Chinese pictogram. I'll put a picture of this for y'all to see. <laughs> That's yeah. a pictogram for something. Like I'm like, oh, how wow. do they visualize something? What you see are two people with a stick over their shoulders like a yoke carrying a 
anonymous bulk of something. <laughs> so there it is, it's something. And it has me wondering, like I'm flipping through this book and there's all kinds of, so here's a whole page of like Cretan symbology. Mm. There's just so much here. And it has me thinking that, I was actually thinking this last night laying in bed, that I wanna sit down and like develop my own pictographic series, right? That mm. I could incorporate into my own quilt, my own textile work in a way that I would know what that glyph was, but not necessarily other people. Yes, I love that. I, and that's a really important part of my other class, the other online course I do, Magic Threads. And it's sort of starting off with developing your own personal symbology or, or understanding which one, which kind of becomes consistent for you that you're constantly drawn to and drawing it yourself, whether or not you think you can draw and seeing how that turns out and sort of allowing that to be part of your own language of imagery. And I, I also like the idea of having kind of secret messages in your stitches. Last year, I read two books that really two novels that really emphasize that. One of them was called Hester. It was based on the main character of The Scarlet Letter, and it was written from her own perspective. And while Hester was a European immigrant in the Northeast, in Salem, I think, it was many years after the witch trials, there was also a lot of information in there about the free and not free Black community and how the language was stitched in imagery and passed along for people to help find their way. And another book that I read called The Thread Collectors, which was had that same theme. I just happened to read these two books in the same amount of time. And this one's about a woman in Louisiana, I wanna say, and a woman in New York who end up kind of connecting through both of their, their husbands fighting in the war. So the woman in New York is sending her husband quilts and just kind of to keep him warm and to keep his fellow soldiers warm. And the woman in Louisiana, the black woman in Louisiana, is sending her husband off with stitched symbols of how, of maps of how to get places and where to find shelter and where to find help. So I just found those two books to be really beautiful in thinking about how we can kind of create our own language of symbols and imagery and stitches. Yeah, I wrote down both of those titles. I'm going to have to pass them along to the person who runs the notebook club. Yeah. That sounds right up our alley. What, if you don't mind sharing, do you have a personal symbol at the moment that particularly resonates with you? Hmm. I mean, right now I'm, I'm kind of regularly drawn to tigers and cheetahs and <laughs> big cats. I have a cat named Tiger, but that's just, it's an imagery from the face of the tiger. And I think that the way that the tiger moves in space and is sort of powerful, but very alert and sort of hiding in, hiding in plain sight through their stripes, but also this really vibrant, fun color. <laughs> Wasn't there kind of a mystical origin story to your cat, if I remember oh, correctly? Oh, yes, yeah. So I have a, one of my first embroideries was a tiger in a bed of flowers. <laughs> and I had been just any cat that walked through the yard. I was like, hey, do you want to come live with us? <laughs> and then one day, tiger just came running down the hill and just, we didn't have any food. And yet he stayed on the back porch the, for the entire afternoon. And then we got food. <laughs> please stay cat first yeah, yeah cat first food second yeah, yeah. listen you, you stitched your wish didn't you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you made it happen one symbol that's come up for me a lot in the last couple of years and i connect it with the visualization that you walked us through but it's this idea of a triple heart i drew it out for mm. you you see that so it's like yeah. a it's like the traditional heart that has we'll say two lobes on top but it has three lobes 
because I feel like I got a lot of love to give. And so I worked that into a lot of my pieces, usually on the back or something, you know, hidden. But it's it's been really special to me. Mm. So thank you for connecting me with that with that image. Yeah. Later today, I really do want to sit down after we get done chatting, sit down and like brainstorm a hundred nouns and verbs that I feel like are essential to telling the kinds of stories I want to tell Mm, mm -hmm. and then begin to draft up some images some pictographs that might go with those. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I also love not having to worry about like prepositions and articles and all the other stuff that (laughs) makes language so crazy. Right. Yeah. One of my favorite pieces that I worked on last year, I was also, the the pregnancy kind of knocked me out and I was very much like not really doing as much as I wanted to, which was fine. Your body is like making another human. You're busy. Uh, (laughs) You're doing a whole lot. But one of the pieces that I did work on because I wanted to encourage, you know, happy, healthy baby. And I, I made a little language out of stitches, like I sort of revised a language out of stitches that sort of hid the, hid the words into the piece. I still haven't finished the piece yet, but I finished the baby. So (laughs) (laughs) to some, to some degree, I will have not have finished the baby ever, but <laughs> she continues to grow up. But, you know, we did get the, the dreamt happy, healthy baby at birth. So, but that, that idea of sort of creating your own text as well and applying it in whatever way you want, because it's your own, you don't have to, you know, apply it in any specific, I think I left out a letter on accident and I was like, I know what that word is intended to say. And that's all that matters. <laughs> well, and it makes me think of, I had a conversation recently with quilter Julian Jamal Jones, who pulls from a lot of like, hip-hop imagery and colors and and song lyrics and things like that in his work and he says that I think maybe these are my words to why he says he does this but it creates these kind of inner circles right like if you see these colors if you read these lyrics and you get it then you're part of the group that is the intended audience Mm, right but if you don't get it it just remains something beautiful for everybody else to enjoy for what it is right and i like that kind of inner outer space that has value on both sides of that line we'll call it right but uh yeah i like the idea of an inner circle and and how you create a piece it's just you and your baby right just you and your baby and i'm sure the stitches are lovely anyone looking will be like oh those are some nice stitches yeah yeah <laughs> and there's you know a seashell with a heart emerging from it and some candles on the side and yeah it's the same thing where you know it could be beautiful but if you kind of look deeper into the imagery, it's you, you start to understand the language of it and all of the images surrounding it. I think there's just a few good luck charms throughout the rest of the piece. But yeah, some people can read it and some people don't need to or don't want to. <laughs> That's right. It's all good. I love thinking about how these symbols can be used to create these inner circles and outer circles and, and how even as a kid I was fascinated by like Egyptian hieroglyphics let's say Mm -hmm. right but then mystical stitches really kind of brought that back to me that kind of like childlike fascination with the abstraction of symbols Mm -hmm. right brought that back to me as an adult and I'm really thankful for that Christy oh yeah I'm happy to provide that yeah so what else are you cooking on what else is going on so in follow-up to mystical stitches which turns two years old on Ooh, June 21st. <laughs> oh, that's my grandma's birthday. Oh, wow. How sweet. <laughs> happy birthday, grandma. Happy birthday, mystical stitches. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So sort of following up with that, I wanted to... Mystical stitches from you as a way of kind of introducing these concepts. But what I really love is allowing people the freedom to sort of discover these meanings for themselves and also to start to draw imagery themselves and not feel 
this idea that like they need to be able to draw to embroider because I think the beauty of so many of the embroidery from all over the world and the beauty of them to me is not that somebody was able to let's say draw a cow perfectly it's actually the way that they drew the cow imperfectly and I still knew it was a cow or a flower just you know basic using the using the basic shape of the flower to to get these things across and to speak across languages and so I wanted to create kind of a design course for people who don't necessarily consider themselves artists and who who don't want to necessarily learn how to draw perfectly and I don't think that's relevant really when it comes to especially working with textiles there's so many other qualities that we can highlight and so many other ways we can describe things and it is the way that we are sort of inherently drawn to certain colors and textures and allowing that to work into our stitches and also allowing us to have our own language in these stitches and to be able to describe things with imagery without necessarily using these pre-prescribed stitches. Like in mystical stitches, I have, you know, all the images are there and some people use them directly and that's fine. I love it. But I also want to, for people who want to maybe use their own imagery, but don't feel confident in it, I want them to feel guided to having more confidence in that. I mean, there's so much power in coming up with a personal symbol. I mean, there's power in finding one that resonates with you without a doubt. But generating one for yourself or finding one for yourself in some unexpected place feels very special. I love it. Yeah. Do you have a working title for the book that you can share with us? I don't. We're kind of going back and forth. At first it was like Mystical Stitches, a design workshop. And then my new editor, we kind of decided together like, no, I think it needs to exist in its own in its own right. So I have, I have, we don't have a working title yet. <laughs> this is really interesting to me because I'm inviting someone on the same side in about a month, Wafa Ghanem, who is a Palestinian textile researcher and activist. And she pulls in all kinds of symbolism in her work and unpacks the symbolism already present in the traditions of Palestinian embroidery. So I think I'm going to be thinking a lot about you when I talk to Wafa that day. One thing... Christy, if it's okay with you that I would like to offer folks listening is that visualization that you walked us through a couple years ago where you grounded us and you led us to our own personal symbol. Is that cool if I share that with folks after this? Oh, definitely. I think finding that time and space to really just explore internally can be so helpful. And a lot of people are like, how do I find? How do I find? It's like, it's all inside. We all have it inside. And also I think there's this fear sometimes that people have like, oh, well, I just made it up. Like, I'm just making this up. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's what we're all doing every day. We're all just making stuff up. And I have this book on creativity and the guy is basically going off and he says, you know, Einstein made up the theory of relativity. Scientists, engineers, all of these uh, architects, everybody is making things up as we go along. And that's not a bad thing. You're making it up given the information that you have already and kind of, so it isn't informed making things up, but I don't think that that should be something that blocks you from doing it. Exactly. I I recently had a guided session with an ancestral medicine practitioner who led me into reflecting on the four main lines of my family tree, right? My Mm. mom's moms and dads and my dad's moms and dads. And throughout the entire visualization, which was really helpful, one little nagging thought I had in the back of my mind is, oh, Zach, you're just making all this up. <laughs> and then the other little thought was, so what? Is it helpful? <laughs> yes. And the answer is yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and it makes me think of this line I just read last night out of the Tao Te Ching. I won't read the whole poem. I'll just read you two lines. But it says, do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Oh, yes. <laughs> what do you say we leave it there, Christy? Yes, I love that. <laughs>
Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you letting your daughter's father take care of her for a little bit so you and I can chat. And I hope you also find some time to sew or make a little something later on. Thank you, Zach. This has been wonderful. I love listening to your episodes and I'm happy to be on one. (laughs) So happy. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Now, if there's somebody you'd like to recommend to be a guest on this show, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me directly at Zach at ZachFoster.com. Just remember Zach is spelled Z-A-K. And why? I don't know. You have to ask my mama. I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, take care, sew something good, and I hope to see you around the nook. I'm ready to go deeper. I'm yeah. Quiet down for a moment and see what comes to mind. All right. Okay, so we can all turn off. If you want to turn off your video at this point, I'm going to turn off mine just so I don't feel like I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, because we're, we're all supposed to be closing our eyes now. I only know if you just want to kind of settle into your seat a little bit more. Find that awareness, the space you're in. Deepening your breathing. And as you breathe up, breathing inward, feeling your chest rise and fall. And as you're doing this breathing in and out, I want you to start feeling on your breath in, the energy of the earth rising up through your core. And as you're breathing out, feel this energy moving back down into the earth. And just feel this exchange of energy with the earth below you. And now as you're feeling this exchange of energy going up through the body as you breathe in and down through the body as you breathe out, feel the energy of the sky above you coming down through your body as the energy moves down into the earth. Feel yourself becoming a conduit between the earth below you and the sky above you, exchanging energy up and down through your breathing. And begin to feel the lightness of being throughout your form. Begin to allow your spine to lengthen, feeling a cord pulling up on the crown of your head. And as you're pulling up from the crown, you'll begin to feel gravity release its hold and feel yourself floating gently upwards. Floating up and up like a soft cloud. Allow the atoms of your body to take on their original stardust form. 
feel yourself passing up through the ceiling, up through the roof above, floating up into the sky. And each inhale brings you up higher and higher. On each exhale, you release any tension felt through your form. Inhale, rising up. And exhale, releasing tension. As you feel yourself moving up through the clouds, through the atmosphere, into the vastness of outer space. Until Earth is just a concept, just an idea. Stars begin to surround you as your energetic nature becomes one with the cosmic space surrounding you. Feel yourself floating in this space. And as you look around, you make out an object slowly drifting your way. Its shape may not be so clear yet as it drifts closer to you. You start to see it take form. You reach out and take hold of this object, taking in its shape, investigating its textures, recognizing its colors. Keeping this object in your hand, you'll feel yourself continuing to drift out. And then you'll see a glowing orb in the distance. You float towards it with this object still in your hand. And you notice that on this orb is a lit up space that seems to be exactly the same as the object you have in your hand. This object is your key to the space. And as you place the object in the space, the orb gently opens up and you'll notice a flight of stairs. Go ahead and take yourself down these stairs, gently walking down. At the bottom, you'll see a glowing room. You notice another being in the room with you. This is your guide. You'll offer this object to the guide and ask if there's anything you need to know about this object. Is there anything else this guide has to say for you?
the room begins to darken a bit. Go ahead and thank your guide. And turn back, back up the stairs. Walking through the door. You find yourself back in space. Floating down gently to earth. As you reach the atmosphere, you find a spot on a sweet, fluffy cloud. And allow this cloud to gracefully bring you back down to your room, back through the ceiling, back into your seat. And as you find yourself back in the space you're in, continue once again to deepen your breathing, exchanging the energy of the earth and the cosmos. Now, as we come back into our rooms, come back into our lives, we start to ground back down into the earth, back down into matter, recognizing gravity once again, maybe placing your hands on the ground or, the, or your chair or your legs and allowing yourself to ground down in your hands as well as in your seat. And gently start to become aware of the space around you, opening your eyes at whatever speed you feel needed. And remembering what that object you saw was and what you learned about this object from the guides that you spoke with. All right. Now that we're back here, that's one of my favorite ways to kind of find new imagery from within and sort of become inspired in a way that is a little bit more self-driven, especially we spend a lot of time absorbing a lot from the outside world. And it's really nice to just go inside and, and see what we've got inside. 